Welcome back to Perspective from Politics NC. Today is Thursday, January 24th, and we're here in Raleigh. I'm Kirk Kovac, and we're here with Thomas Mills. How are you, Kirk? I'm good, and I wanted to start us off on a similar note from the last time we spoke about the Chapel Hill, or the, um, I'm sorry, the UNC system, with specifically the flagship school at Chapel Hill. There's an article in The Atlantic, I think it was today, talking about how administration at these universities, and that's the chancellors, but also the president of the university system, like in North Carolina, how a lot of them are either quitting their job or getting fired from their job. And this quote stuck out to me. A professor who studies this said that, I don't know who would want the job, and I worry about who they would find palatable enough for the job. So I wondered your thoughts specifically in North Carolina. How does the Board of Governors go about replacing a Margaret Spellings? My guess is they don't know how they're going to go about replacing Margaret Spellings. I mean, she was their star, and she couldn't stick around. Uh, the, the problem that we've got is we've moved from an era where boards of governors kind of oversaw the university technically, but, but they, they basically left it up to the president. Um, you know, in North Carolina, Bill Friday was president forever, and they kind of got out of his way and let him run the administration. And I, I think if you look at North Carolina, it's a reflection of how uh, until the General Assembly became Republican that we, we allowed uh, municipalities to work. We have a, most of our, our towns and cities – and uh, have a county, a, a manager council system where the, the, we have a professional manager who manages the city staff and, and the elected board that kind of oversees them. But it, it's still run by professionals. And that's really the model for the university, except now the Republicans have decided, since they actually have the power to run things, that they're going to meddle. They've done it in municipalities, and now they're doing it in the university system. And it really does make it difficult to go find highly qualified people because they know that their vision is always going to be overseen and contradicted by a board of people who is, by definition, full of uh, folks with big egos. And it, it, makes it, it makes it really hard. Do you think we're at a point now because, to back up a little bit, the article also references how the university system in Wisconsin is known worldwide and how it has suffered because of a similar type of meddling by a conservative um, government in power. Do you think that the General Assembly in North Carolina is doing irrevocable damage to the university system? Have we reached that point yet, or is this sort of a, an inflection point where we could hopefully see someone intervene and, and uh, stem this a little bit? I think I think they've done serious damage, and I, and I think it's going to be hard to get out of it because um, they've turned everything political and everything ideological. You know, they they went about uh, shifting a lot of partisan races, uh, nonpartisan races to partisan. Their whole mentality is 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 hyper partisanship, and so. They're not willing to look for people who are the most qualified to run the university. They're looking for an ideological purity to run the university system. And it's an ideological purity that believes that government can't do anything right. So, you know, 
how, how, do, how do we get out of this? I mean, how do we attract people to come into the university who, who's, who are not bringing with a, a bunch of ideological baggage to the system and, and instead trying to bring expertise and an understanding of what makes a, a university great? Um, you know, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult what they've done. Right. I, I wanted to shift gears a little bit and talk about last Friday. I think it's been a week. There was a story released by the News and Observer that cataloged these federal agents interviewing and asking questions of some General Assembly members, some Republican members about the practices of the Speaker of the House and his private business dealings. But at the same time, the Speaker released an article from his personal page where he he introduced an invitation to the president to deliver his State of the Union address in North Carolina, because as you know, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, refusing to let him give his State of the Union address in the House while the government shut down. So what do you make of Tim Moore's invitation of Donald Trump to deliver his State of the Union here? Well, I think you, you, you pretty much said it without saying it. He was trying to change the conversation. Uh, Tim Moore's gotten a ton of bad press. What better way to try to change the, the, the narrative than to uh, make an outrageous statement and invitation? Nobody believed that Donald Trump was going to come to North Carolina, though I think he may have called more. I think I read that he did yeah. call more about it. But, you know, the other thing is, is Tim Moore is in such bad shape that he's pandering to a guy who, according to the AP, has a 34% approval rating. That says a whole lot about Moore right now. That his goal is is to get the support of somebody that nobody else is supporting. Well, I, that that brings me to something I meant to mention last time, but you had written about how I think two Democrats actually voted for Moore to be Speaker of the House. But I wondered why you thought Tim was able to retain his speakership given all of these various investigations and ethical quandaries he finds himself in why he was able to command the support of his caucus again i'm i'm a little bit surprised that there wasn't more uh contentious fight and there may have been i mean you you don't always hear everything that's going on and there may have been a lot of jockeying um behind the scenes but the reality is 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 a number of the people um that would have challenged him uh lost either in the primary or in the general election so I think to some degree there was a bunch of licking of wounds going on right now. And, uh, you know, I, I think Tim just must must have had the core of support that was willing to stick behind him and not really look for any more changes than they already saw coming. Well, speaking of the, the shutdown that prompted this invitation from Tim to the president of the United States, one of our senators, Richard Burr, was quoted as saying, with regard to a funding bill that would reopen the government that does not include money for the uh, the wall on the southern border, he said, the president won't sign it. Why would we work on it? I wanted to see what you thought about the idea that the legislative branch shouldn't do anything unless the executive guarantees a signature. Yeah, well, that, you know, that, that was that was not a very smart statement on, on Richard Burr's part. The the um, the 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 uh legislative branch should be always asserting their influence and uh you know 
they could put a bill in front of the president and make him look bad and make themselves look good, for one thing, just from a purely political standpoint. Um, but, but the other thing is, is if they put a decent bill in front of the president, I think you'd start to get a lot of pressure on him to, to, to sign something. So, you know, Burr's statement wasn't very smart, but as far as North Carolina goes, um, you know, you're about to see a General Assembly that's going to pass a whole lot of bills, I think, that Roy Cooper is not going to sign. Uh, so there, there, there are political reasons to do it because you need to appeal to your base. And um, not talking about a bill, and really that's probably what Richard Burr's talking about, I mean, if, if you want to get down to it, um, a lot of Republicans don't want to run in a primary against somebody who's saying he supported a bill that didn't have a wall in it and uh, funding for the wall in it. So, you know, it, there, there's everything's got uh, a political aspect to it, but I think there, there are plenty of bills that, that – that a president's threatening to veto that end up getting discussed and passed. The, the other thing is, is I, I think that's kind of how negotiations begin. I don't, I don't know why all of a sudden, it's not all of a sudden, it's been a long time, but uh, the legislative branch thinks that they're subservient to the executive branch. That doesn't make any sense. Well, I think another part that might factor into this, one of the polls I saw, people blame either the president overwhelmingly for the shutdown or Democrats generally. But if if you ask, if you blame congressional Republicans, it barely polls. So maybe they're just trying to stay out of the news in that regard. But that brings up our other senator, Tom Tillis, who is up for election in the next cycle. And I actually haven't seen much from him. I, I see a lot mentioning him as someone that might be pressured to try and reopen the government because he will be in a tight race. Have you seen anything specifically about uh, Tom Tillis or have any thoughts about how his positioning might d be different than a Richard Burr who might not even run again? Um, you know, I, I've been watching Tillis, and he has done everything he can to move himself to the center. And uh, I, I've not seen much of him in, in this shutdown fight. Um, I, I think that... Uh, I've seen some statements about let's kind of generic, let's reopen government type thing, but I've not seen him really getting into the weeds. I did see a list of Republican senators on Twitter yesterday. So, you know, believe what you want about what was in a Twitter feed, but it listed Republican senators who wanted to see government open as soon as possible. Burr's name was on it. Tillis was not, and and the gist of it was, here are the senators to call because they're influential, and Tillis's name was not on that list. That is interesting. Switching to the elections that are coming up, where Tom Tillis will be up for re-election, we've had a, a flurry of candidates announcing for presidential primaries on the Democratic side. I know you've talked before about um, liking or disliking some candidates. I know you're a proponent of Amy Klobuchar if she decides to run, but I wanted to get your opinion on Kamala Harris specifically because it seems like her path to winning the primary would rely heavily on doing well in the South and particularly North and South Carolina. So I wanted to see if you had any thoughts about her or maybe just how the South will play in both the primaries and the general elections in 2020. 
I'm not a huge fan of Kamala Harris, or, or at least not a huge fan of her as, as president. I, I think um, she may make a great senator, but right now we don't know anything about her. You know, and I, I think one of the problems that I have right now with the way we select our presidential candidates is, is we're not looking at what people do. We're looking at what they say. The Republicans just elected a guy who sat there and lied to him throughout the primary, made up stuff all, and, and they elected him anyhow because, because he was, you know, they liked what he said. Um, you know, Harris doesn't really have much of a record. Uh, you know, when I ask people what they like about her, they, they talk about what she said. Well, let me tell you something about presidential candidates. Every one of them is going to tell you what they think you want to hear. And Harris is no exception to that. She hadn't even been in the Senate for two years, or she's just been, I guess it's just been two years. And uh, before that, she was attorney general in, in uh, um, California. And I think when you start looking at that record, people are going to kind of go, well, you know, I think she gave passes to a, a, a lot of corporate donors and that type of thing. So you, you've got a woman who doesn't have a ton of track record, though she's been very uh, she, she's she's been out front on a lot of issues verbally. But I want to see I want to see some substance. And and the other thing my concern is, and it's not just Harris; it's a lot of these people getting into this race. Is I believe we need somebody who can put put the country back on track, and. I'm not a fan of grandstanders, and I think there are a lot of grandstanders getting in this, uh, in, in into this race right now. And uh, we need somebody that can that can try to put the country back together, not further divide it. And I think listening to her rhetoric, it's very divisive. And you know, I think is she going to run through the south you know she, she certainly i mean her, her her father was jamaican she's her her, her uh, mother was was indian um you know she she appeals she's got a lot a lot of appeal to a lot of uh, black voters and and if that they're based in the south and you're also got states like the size of georgia and north carolina you, you got a lot of delegates coming out of there when you're looking for a convention so i don't know what her math looks like but um you know, she starts with, with California, and that's a lot of delegates right there. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah, I know she sort of catapulted a bit along with some other senators during Kavanaugh hearings. That was a big opportunity for a lot of people to have a big stage and a lot of coverage all at once. And also, to your point, the record she does have uh, as a prosecutor has received a lot of scrutiny that I've seen from more uh, liberal type voters. When you talk about a divide between the country, we have a divide in our own state here in the ninth district over the certification of Mark Harris and his slim victory, or apparent victory, ostensible victory. So I think since last time we talked, there was a court case and I wanted to see if you could uh, tap into that a little bit, what happened since we last met. Well. North Carolina's got a complicated situation right now with their state board of elections. And, and the way, uh, I, I guess the Constitution says, is that the state board is required to certify um, candidates. And, and between the time of the election, when most candidates got certified, and, and uh, the time of this investigation, our, our board was dissolved. So a, as of right now, there is no state board of elections. 
So Mark Harris, who's who did not get certified, the former board, by an overwhelming majority, decided not to certify him, Republicans and Democrats, because of the, the taint of fraud in the, in the election. Harris goes to court to say, I want the court to certify me. And it was in a hearing in front of Judge Paul Ridgway in, in Wake County uh, last week, and, and Judge Ridgway said, you know, I don't have the authority to certify you. That's up to the board. There will be a new board in place uh, at, in, at the end of this month, early February. I can't remember when it's going, actually going to take place, but um, there's going to be a new board, and, and I'll let them handle it. My guess is, is that new board is going to say, well, you know, we got to continue this investigation. I mean, there are a lot of accusations of fraud out there, and the idea that you would certify a guy who hired somebody that almost definitely committed some sort of fraud, election fraud without a thorough investigation is, is kind of absurd. So, well, One of the thoughts I had about that was, I know a lot of the county Republican chairs out in that area. I think the biggest argument they're making now about certification is these people in the 9th District don't have representation in Congress. But I wonder if there's a lot of, if there are legs on that argument, if it matters how long they don't have representation, because they've already not had representation. So if well, they might as well have. You know, the Republicans could have cared less that uh, nobody, nobody in the uh, 12th congressional district had representation when Mel Watt went into the administration. And, and you know, people wanted an early election, and, and Pat McCrory said, nope, nope, we're going to let you go for nine or ten months, whatever they went, and just have hold, hold an election in November. It would be too costly, da-da-da-da-da. And so, you know, the idea that all of a sudden— Republicans need re- people need representation after them saying that they didn't need representation just two years ago. It kind of falls on deaf ears. Right, it's it's kind of much ado about nothing in the grand scheme of things. It would it'd be different if if it would change who had the majority as well. It's it's just one out of right. four hundred and thirty-five people. Well, was there anything else that you wanted to touch on today? Uh. Nothing in particular. You know, I think we're going to be seeing the legislature get back into action real soon, and and, uh, I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about going forward. I believe next time we talk, they will either have been in session for a day or that'll be the day of, so maybe we'll have some more insight into what their first steps are. Uh, I hope so. But I will see you then. All right. Thank you, Kirk.